The guest I have on today is Ricardo Ramirez, who goes by Ricky, and he's an instructor at the Rush University Department of Occupational Therapy with clinical expertise in adult and adolescent inpatient behavioral health, as well as acute care. As a current practicing occupational therapist, his clinical work and scholarship centers around delivering holistic inpatient occupational therapy services for underserved populations, such as the LGBTQ community, Latinos, and other groups impacted by the social determinants of health. And using an occupational justice framework, he teaches courses at Rush University related to mental health and is passionate about furthering, promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion across the profession. Welcome to the show, Ricky. How are you doing? Thank you. Good yourself? We're doing pretty good. I'm glad I'm not in class. I'm at home, but it looks like you're in an office somewhere. <laughs> so you are on campus right now? I am on campus, yeah, here at Rush, uh, which is situated in Chicago. Awesome, awesome. So yeah. what kind of classes are you teaching right now? Are you, are you allowed to share that information? <laughs> For sure, yeah. So I am kind of the quote-unquote only mental health person here on faculty, and so I take ownership of kind of uh, mental health kind of intro class, our mental health interventions class. And then also I, uh, right now I'm teaching a course called uh, Sociocultural Aspects of Care, where we talk about all types of different cultures, uh, different cultural concepts and how that relates to OT. And then also a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, topics as well. Awesome. That's a really big role. I remember my, my f- school too, we had one main OT for mental health and that. She was a really good role model. So that's awesome. Thank you for doing what you're doing. It's very important. Of course. <laughs> of course. So I want to back up a little bit. Tell me a bit about how you just got started with OT. How did you find it? And kind of like most of us, we usually have a story. Uh, how yeah. did you find OT? Yeah, for sure. So um, how my story kind of starts off is uh, when I was in high school, I used to live uh, next to an elderly neighbor who was a widow and she was in her 90s. And I'll always remember she used to uh, give me a call when I was like 13, 14 years old and ask me to help her out with basic like IDLs, getting something off the shelf or like, hey, can you retrieve this from the basement for me? And she would always kind of repay me back with like cookies or some sort of baked goods or anything like that. But that kind of initially like sparked for me like, huh, like I wonder if there's a profession out there that can work with people to make sure that they can problem solve through these barriers and how, you know, it's not necessarily always someone else doing the job for them, but how can people become more independent? So that was a little bit of how kind of my, you know, first initial thoughts kind of thought kind of came about. And then um, when I was an undergrad, I was still very confused. I was actually an engineering major and computer science major for uh, two years without kind of like a path of like where to go. And actually, on my way to my campus job at the library, I actually slipped uh, here because in Chicago, right, we got a lot of uh, snow, except for this year. But I slipped and I fractured my T4 vertebra. And so I was out of school for like two months and I was on like a modified bed rest almost. And I required like so much assist for basic ADLs for the first time. Intimate ADLs, right, like dressing or toileting, just because of pain and just because of kind of light light sensitivity. Uh And it was, you know, my parents, of course, provided that assistance with no worry or doubt. Um, But for me, for the first time, I felt like 
oh my God, like my independence has been stripped away from me. So from that point, I found out about OT and kind of like, I just pursued it and had that lived experience to kind of help me propel forward. Wow, you were exposed to it at such a younger age, but also like personally, like not very people like get to experience it. Like, like it, at least on the ADL level, like when I think about, I think like early intervention, school OT, but like the actual ADL, like I just typically imagine maybe it has to do with where I work, but like the adult or something. So, wow, that's really like special how OT impacted you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's a unique journey for sure. (laughs) So how did you get involved with mental health? So I graduated with my OTD and I had only done a level one in mental health and inpatient mental health where I did my last full-time job at. And so I graduated with my OTD. I specialized a lot in working with Latinx communities who've experienced cancer. And I graduated and I just honestly did not know what to do or what to practice. And so I saw that there was a mental health opening as well as like acute care openings. And so I thought, hey, I did a field work in both. So like, let's have at it. And honestly, it was the best decision I've made in my career because I just fell in love with mental health all over again. And it has been, you know, such an honor to work with the clients that I work with that I kind of came on to like just quote unquote, like, you know, unintentionally. Right. You kind of fell into two things pretty worked out in your life like that how you met OT, and then the mental health aspect. That's really cool. Can you tell me a little about your role, what you do like on the job? So in my prior job, I was working full-time, three days in mental health and inpatient behavioral health in our adult unit and our adolescent unit. And then my other two days of the week were actually in acute care. I was able to do a little bit of that. And then right now, because of my teaching load, I only practice on Tuesdays here in our inpatient psych unit that's all adult. But kind of like my role on the job is just kind of, I like to say it like just as it is in every practice setting with OT, like, you know, we enable participation through the meaningful use of activities, right? So even though it looks very different compared to like more of these like FISDIS settings, I do things all the time such as like, hey, like, you know, let's work on health management. Let's work on medication management. Let's uh, trail out like, you know, budgeting or, you know, with when I used to work with adolescents full time, like, you know, let's simulate like you uh, shopping at a grocery store and, you know, the social skills that you need to interact with the cashier and how much money do you have to pay? So <laughs> a lot of those different kind of specifically IDLs and health management and sleep and rest are super, super emphasized in my own personal mental health practice. Yeah. Also very important too. I found myself like, kind of falling towards that like just mental health in general but like the IEDL aspect like the very specific things I think it was like really kind of what I really liked and why I got into OTs like it's very OT and activity occupation based like money management and like meal preparation meds and stuff that's really cool do your patients enjoy doing stuff like that like in the setting yeah they definitely do a lot of yeah um especially the the adolescents that i used to work with full-time and i still work with on a a per diem basis they are all under the state's care so they don't have any long-term adult figures in their life unfortunately here in illinois it's uh under dcfs in other states i know it's referred to different agencies but a lot of the youth that all the youth that i worked with uh came from that agency and also with extensive trauma And so they would love any opportunity to kind of learn like 
quote unquote, like life skills, right? That nobody unfortunately ever taught them. So even things like not just like IEDLs, but even like basic, you know, quote unquote, basic social skills that, you know, you and I have learned, you know, through our interactions, like, you know, how do you come up to someone and say hi and like ask follow-up questions, right? That's not something that, you know, I don't think any of us were like sat down and taught, uh, but we just kind of, you know, were ingrained in our experiences. And so the clients that I used to work with full-time really, really love to kind of like immerse themselves in those activities. Yeah. And social aspect is just like, just a part of our mental health is just, even if it's not actively in your groups or interventions, it's like in the background, you know, just that like milieu, right. And interacting, it's just so huge. It's like such a big occupation that it is its own. I think it's its own occupation. Yeah. Social, right. (laughs) For our listeners out there, some of you may not know that health management, when I was in school, it wasn't its own occupation. Can you talk a little bit more about like a little bit about what that is for those people who don't know, like what's health management? I didn't know that's so. Yeah, for me too. Like in, uh, when I was in school too, it wasn't a thing. Like it wasn't in the OT practice framework. And so health management is essentially an, an occupation in its own where, you know, a, a variety of different activities fall under it, whether it's like medication management, you know, scheduling appointments, remembering how to track appointments, nutrition is a huge one too. So kind of anything that supports our overall physical and also mental health as well uh, kind of falls into that bucket. Beforehand, it used to be kind of categorized as an IDL, but it's been really, really great to kind of have a distinct kind of uh, term and occupation to go under, especially for like documentation purposes too. Yeah. And I think it's really great because now I think about it like, oh, what are the occupations? I go off the list and it's like, oh, I didn't address health management. And it's like, even though it was an IDL before, it wasn't like very front and center, kind of like how the OTPF made sleep and rest, rest and sleep also its own occupation, which I also love. like. It's, everybody talks about how it's so important these days, right? It's like, whoop, we're right ahead of that. It's its own occupation. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to ask you, what kind of things do you think are some of the challenges you see in the mental health with just currently going on in like the current state of like we have the pandemic, right? And then now just like a lot of, People are kind of getting used to like the change in routine. Maybe some people have adopted, but mental health, right? They may have their own specific challenges with that. I would imagine. How are people coping, and what are some of the interventions that you think are helping out with these clients? Yeah, especially with COVID, a lot of the patients that I've seen have definitely uh, been impacted in some way or another. Whether it's like a job loss, right, or a major life event, like somebody's, uh, you know, loved one passes away because of COVID. Or they just have very limited access to kind of the family members. And so mm. during kind of the peak of COVID, I definitely saw a lot of that. And it's definitely just impacting, you know, those social relationships, that social participation piece, and inevitably impacting mental health as well. And so a lot of the things that I kind of go over with folks is honestly, like, how can we put grieving into kind of that health management bucket? So like, what are some actual you know, activities that we can do with clients to, you know, make sure that they mourn, you know, peacefully and healthily in a way that, you know, promotes their health and that they can get onto the next stage. I work in inpatient psych, so it's a little bit different in terms of kind of length of stay, right? With adults, I don't have all the time in the world or, mm-hmm. you know, get follow with them on a weekly basis. It's just for a few sessions. But even things such as like art expression has been really helpful for a lot of my clients, or even something as like 
you know, simple but super meaningful of like writing a thank you letter to their loved one, or even if it's kind of, you know, just adjusting roles. So Hmm. If, for example, like if somebody's loved one passes away for COVID, I've done this before with someone like, you know, what are what is a list of all occupations that kind of like this person used to do for you? And how how are you going to seek support or how are you going to accomplish these occupations now that they're not here physically with us? And so it's been a lot of different moving parts, um, yeah. including, for ex- yeah, including, for example, like developing action plans to uh, start finding jobs especially with the, you know, pandemic. So mm-hmm. it's been a lot of different uh, moving parts for sure. Yeah, I love it. This kind of plays into the creativity of OT and what you can do. And I remember learning those things in school, <laughs> the things you mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. cool. Lately in the news, there's been some controversy surrounding the term Latinx. And those of you who don't know, I think the governor uh, was it Arkansas uh, banned it from civil use in terms of that context. So what are some of your thoughts on that, Ricky? So definitely, this is uh, such an issue that's that in the last few years, even when I was a student, uh, was still kind of up in debate. So for folks who don't know, Latinx is essentially it was designed to be a inc- gender-inclusive term for people belonging to the Latino, Latina uh, community. And so over the years, we've replaced the, you know, the O and replaced it with an X to be more inclusive of everyone, just because as most Romance languages, uh, Spanish is gendered. And so there's a variety of different perspectives of like, you know, we should use this term or not. I kind of fall in the middle-ish. Like many proponents say that, right, we should be gender inclusive and force, right? And I completely believe that too. And then on the other side, there's folks who also believe that, that, you know, the U.S. is essentially kind of like imposing this on a term that has existed for years and years at a time. Mm. Uh, especially with something that's like super hard to pronounce in Spanish, such as an X sure. um, at the end of a word. So, you know, there's a lot of controversy in terms of that as well. And I recently just uh, did some, a little bit of background research, and I believe only like uh, 23% of U.S. adults who identify as like uh, Latino, Latina, uh, Latinx, um, have actually heard of the term Latinx, mm. and only 3% of that 23% has actually used it in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really goes to show kind of like, you know, it's not, you know, fully, fully popular out there. And a lot of my, like all my scholarship addresses this community as Latinx, just because I do value that gender inclusivity a ton. But I was even presenting some of my work at the AOTA Mental Health Specialty Conference in December of last year, and I remember someone came up to me and said, like, oh, I'm sorry, but I just don't know what that means. And uh, for me, I was, like, so stunned. I was like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> but after kind of doing more and more of this research, like, you know, I see that I'm on the opposite side of, like, hey, like, I'm using this term that not, ma- not many people may know. Um, at the same time, I do also want to use Latino Latina just because it's more accessible to most of the community. Yeah. But uh, there has been kind of like a new term going on besides Latinx. It's called uh, Latine. Latine, right? The E. E. With the E, yeah. Um, Just because it's more kind of accessible in terms of that, like, you know, rolling it off the Spanish tongue. Um, And so that is something that I'm planning on kind of adopting more throughout my scholarship. Uh, I like it. Um, I think it's a nice middle ground. uh, But I'm sure there's a lot of proponents and also people who are not for it, too. I think it's so cool that we can see just like in our lives, the 
use of language and how it can be like a source of like change. You're like we might probably take it for granted, but that's what makes humans like different than animals. Like right? we have a language, and we you know we learn like English or Spanish or whatever. But it's like fluid too at the same time because it needs to be adopting with modern society. So, I mean, I see both sides. I'm kind of like in the middle too. But that's just a good reminder to me. Like whenever I'm like, oh, like that's that's a whatever term, or I don't know what that is. It's like, well, maybe there's a reason behind it, or what are the pros and cons, and to really just consider both sides and the grays and the shades in between and the conversation and learning something about it, especially as an OT, right? Because there's. Groups that are probably going to be marginalized or minorities that are going to be affected by that, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of your experiences, backgrounds is in with minority communities, particularly those with Latinx background or the LGBTQ plus community. So can you tell me a little bit about that and how you got involved with it? With the Latinx community, I grew up in a predominantly Mexican neighborhood and community overall kind of like where I grew up in. And I always knew that I wanted to give back in some sort of capacity. And then uh, once I was actually in OT school, my sister, who's a little bit older than me, she got a very rare form of lymphoma. And throughout OT school, she went through kind of like the diagnosis process, the treatment process, and then in remission. And so my OTD work really focused on working with Latinx families who have experienced cancer, but after treatment because we know that cancer is a chronic condition as well. And so a lot of the effects that I saw with my sister definitely also, you know, continued after treatment. And so usually that's at the point where services kind of drop off. And so I wanted to see like, what is OT's distinct role in that kind of point in time with not just the client themselves, but also the entire family, uh, just given the cultural, you know, significance and value of family in the Latinx community. But essentially, like what I did is I did a, a qualitative study um, interviewing uh, Latinx families. So both uh, the people who've experienced cancer uh, and their family caregivers, as well as cancer care providers, too. And seeing like, you know, what are some common challenges? What are some common strengths amongst this community after going through cancer treatment? You know, what are still some of the barriers to occupation? What does occupation look like now? And so there were some pretty cool findings in that, you know, starting off with strengths, like a lot of people found like new occupations to engage in after cancer treatment. So things like health management, for sure, are definitely much more relevant and important. Uh, But even things uh, such as like community participation and volunteering. So I worked a lot with uh, an organization here in Chicago and Pilsen that uh, is just composed of Latina breast cancer survivors who, you know, dedicate entirely their entire work week, essentially, to just volunteering, either to fundraise, to, you know, be different uh, peer health navigators for folks, um, and also just, uh, you know, you know, sell garments on the side, too, um, just in in the name of this organization. Mm. And so that was kind of like one aspect that I kind of titled uh, Occupational Post-Traumatic Growth, which is post-traumatic growth is a essentially kind of the whole, you know, you're better, you know, you're stronger. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger type of deal. Yeah. Uh, like you come off cancer with such a new perspective and such new energy. But at the same time, unfortunately, uh, people, of course, participation looked look a lot different. Mm. Uh, so many folks experienced occupational deprivation as they 
weren't able to re-engage in those life roles like being at work or experienced uh, physical limitations like cancer-related fatigue was the was a huge one that I heard throughout. And even things like, uh, I remember this one participant that I interviewed, she mentioned that one thing that really, like her life has pretty much stayed the same pre and post, except for the fact that she can't uh, go out dancing with her friends anymore because she gets tired so quickly. And so uh, like I, when I heard that, I thought like, wow, like that's something that's actually like super, super duper important. Right. Especially to a young woman, you know, in her 30s, just kind of like, you know, living life. Yeah. And how it's something also like super relevant to OT. Like pacing and all these strategies you can go into. And yeah. Do you think there's a role we can play in preparing patients and who are going to undergo treatment, like with maybe like just their mindset and psychosocially? So that they're ready and maybe they be, can be planning for fatigue because it's such a huge one for cancer. They probably talk about it with like therapies, like chemos and stuff. But do you think OT has a role to play in that? Like as we're seeing them and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. And at the hospital that I used to work at before, uh, full time on the acute care side on the oncology floor, uh, they would always place me there just given kind of like the history of my work. And with their bone marrow transplant uh, patients specifically, we would see them right before kind of anything started to kind of get like a baseline assessment of like where they're at right now. And a lot of the times I would prepare people kind of like, hey, like, you know, there's going to be some days where you're not going to feel so great whatsoever. But like, you know, number one thing, get out of bed at least, right? Uh, change your clothes, right? You know, get to the chair. Yeah. Uh, so strategies like that and just honestly just assessing like what's going on right now like you know and I, of course just also given the background of my work too i would always assess for that like that mental health perspective too you know like what are some coping strategies that people already have um, before coming into this experience who are some of the social supports that are active in their life and how can we support them now yeah and then fortunately we were able to see those patients uh, once a week um, just in case, you know, just to make sure that we keep them on our radar, that they don't fall off. Because what used to happen a lot was uh, this patient group was, you know, at the evaluation, they were deemed independent, right? Mm. Like, let's go. And then folks were referred to at, at the very end when they're all super deconditioned. And so I thought it was a great strategy to kind of embed OT throughout that cancer care uh, from, you know, even before uh, treatment to, uh, as people are going on. And ideally, in my own world, I would love for, you know, OT to continue following these people too. Right. Um, even after treatment. Do they typically like discharge services? Like I'm just thinking from like my own practice, like home health, right? Do these cancer survivors, particularly in this Latinx community, like get such a service or are they just kind of left high and dry and left on their own? Like a lot of the literature does say that, uh, Folks who are underrepresented in terms of like race and ethnicity do not receive, you know, the same amount of rehab compared to their white counterparts. Yeah. And so I've definitely seen this uh, time and time play again, unfortunately, either due to insurance coverage or to being uh, undocumented too. a lot of uh, the patients that I've worked with in acute care on that cancer side who are Latinx, unfortunately, experience those barriers. So, you know, services like outpatient OT will probably never happen unless they're pro bono mm. uh, provided by the hospital. Or unfortunately, even when I see uh, someone who, 
you know, is appropriate for acute rehab, right? Just because they don't have insurance, they are denied all these services that yeah. they you know, are medically necessary. So a lot of the time I try to do my best as much as I can in that inpatient admission and try to see if we can like bend uh, as much equipment as possible. If not, I do provide kind of, you know, resources in terms of kind of like a loaning closet, uh, you know, free services and supports like that, but definitely an injustice for sure. So I think some of the implications is essentially realizing that, you know, because cancer is a chronic condition, we should be treating it as one, right? Just like diabetes, hypertension, right? Uh, that carries on with you uh, even after treatment. And so I think really seeing as OT as like not just stopping once like treatment is over or when folks are, you know, in remission, that we need to continue on, right? Even even beyond uh, just Latinx cancer survivors, right? For every cancer survivor. When I was developing this project and writing up the manuscript and everything like that, there was only one article out there in the entire OT literature that I could find that specifically talks about Latinx cancer survivors. And usually in the oncology literature, a lot of it focuses on, uh, you know, white middle-aged women with breast cancer. And so OT specifically does that a ton. And so uh, my article was actually the second OT kind of piece out there to really address kind of this community that's kind of growing and growing much more. And so I think that we do need to really think about that in terms of like the research that we conduct of also including, you know, communities that have not been represented whatsoever. I think Latinx folks are just at the, you know, that's just the peak of the entire kind of mountain that's missing. I agree. Yeah. And then uh, another really important implication that I have found throughout my own research that I try to apply as much as possible in my own practice is just uh, embedding holistic occupational therapy services throughout the care continuum. So for example, if folks are inpatient and let's say they come in for like a cancer crisis, what can I do within my entire skill set in one session to do as much as possible, right? So how can I support, you know, the physical health needs, the DME needs, health needs, all under kind of like, essentially make it like a one-stop shop for everybody. Um, just because of the way kind of like the healthcare system is mapped out in terms of like, right, we're under a bundle payment plan, right? So folks aren't technically being charged extra for OT uh, while they're in admission. And so I think that really helps too. But also I think it really speaks to the need of like our role uh, that's emerging in primary care. Mm. So part of my doctoral work was also uh, working in, in an oncology clinic in a hospital and providing OT services, evaluations and treatment sessions uh, while people saw their oncologist. Uh, So while people were like waiting for their oncologist, uh, we would do evals and uh, intervention sessions with them too, just to kind of mitigate that whole like transportation barrier as well. And just kind of really paying attention entirely to the, you know, social determinants of health and how we can finagle some of them. I think like primary care is one that we can easily tackle or, you know, Easily is a very light word, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, do, it's a strategy that's been going ongoing uh, for the past couple of years to mitigate uh, one social determinant of health. Yeah. For those listeners out there who aren't that familiar, and I've been actually using this term more and looking more into it, what do you mean by the social determinants and why is it important? I value the social determinants of health so much and I use it in my practice all the time. So the social determinants of health or also abbreviated as SDOH are the conditions and environments in which people 
you know, essentially live and participate, work, play, do all the occupations that you can think of. So it's just looking at the entire environmental piece. And so the CDC has a lot of great literature out there and specifically Healthy People 2030, the campaign that's kind of run by them, specifically is focusing on making sure that conditions such as, for example, housing, such as, you know, access to food, access, you know, financial access to are all kind of areas that are being addressed by the CDC. And so we see a lot of these social factors, right? They're honestly just socially construed, right? There's not a biological reason for it or anything like that. How they can be barriers to participation, health and wellness overall. Yeah. It's a good reminder too, to kind of like plan even something like discharge, like think about, oh, like housing, like the quality of their housing is like, oh, wow, actually, I've just forgot, like, this patient lives in a rural area, they're not going to get access to this and that. And that totally changes like what I typically do, you know, so it's like, really, really helpful resource for those, especially new OTs who are starting out there, and trying to just like, use more resources and just look at the bigger picture, because there can be so much even if you think holistic is like, what is holistic? It's like really good resource amongst the other things we talked about so far on this podcast. Yeah, I uh, honestly love it. And even something that I forgot to mention was like, you know, neighborhood violence is a huge social determinant of health, right? That influences people's walkability in terms of going to different stores or even like parks and all that kind of accessible locations that, you know, we take for granted sometimes. Right. Yeah. Not everybody hops in a car, you know, and drives from point A to point B or, or even if they do, they might avoid certain, you know, like there's so many things that go into it. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then also with the LGBTQ plus community, I came out in my early 20s as a gay man. And so for me, that's been an identity that I've been able to connect with a lot of the youth I've been working with. And so once I kind of like, you know, was kind of that person for a lot of my kids to kind of go to regarding all stuff LGBTQ plus, I naturally just kind of, you know, took the lead on that as well. And I've been really passionate about serving that community too. Yeah. And I just think back on well, before I go back and I have two thoughts that I want to try and remember. <laughs> how do you, how does that come up? Like with your clients, like, do you go, oh, by the way, like, you know, like, do they fill out a survey? And you go, I noticed that. Like, how do you approach that conversation to kind of open yourself up as a resource? A lot of the times in the charts that I would read, I'm like super proud that this generation that's coming up, like, is so vocal and so expressive about kind of their own identities, which is super great that we haven't really seen before. And so, Honestly, the majority of the, of the patients that I would already kind of see would start, you know, already saying like, you know, I go by this name and I go by the, these pronouns. And it would just honestly like just lend itself to such a natural conversation with me and my evaluations. Whenever I saw like a kid or youth just kind of express that, I like just always made it a disclaimer um, that you know, that I was a safe resource to go to, that I also belong uh, to the community and have lived experience. Of course, not in any way that's comparable to theirs, right? They're, they're, they have their own unique journey as well. Mm -hmm. And so I really worked with them um, throughout the entire kind of the OT process to disclose myself as a safe resource, but also to make sure that they knew that, you know, this was a profession that they can go to if they need any support in this area. Yeah. And sometimes, right, I worked with, uh, you know, a couple of different youth, too, who were, like, super confident and super great with their identity and, like, had no questions or concerns. And, like, you know, like, that's cool, too, right? It doesn't have to be, you know, a quote-unquote issue that we have to address in OT, right? Yeah. So that's how it's kind of lended itself to it. Do you find that 
there are like the people who have more challenges, like on the other end of the spectrum. Like, what about those who are unsure, maybe really like anxious to tell people? Maybe it's cultural. Like, I mean, in terms of like OT, there's like so many factors, right, that can go into why yeah. someone may have fear, even right, to talk about their identity or who their feelings. And what do you think are some of the tips that our listeners who work with this population or want to work with this population can learn from? Yeah, for sure. I have worked with um, a lot of youth who've expressed that to me of like they're questioning or they're not really uh, fully sure, which is totally okay, right? Gender and sexual orientation is super fluid. But a lot of the times what I would do then and there, I've done a lot of activities related to, um, I believe it's called the gender workbook, a request, uh, something around that variation. But I've also done activities such as like the gender unicorn uh, with a lot of my youth too, which is kind of like a visual representation of sex, gender, sexual orientation, attraction, mm -hmm. romantic uh, interests, all that kind of sorts. And sometimes I've seen this be, be effective in group settings too, where let's say I know that when I'm working in a milieu where the LGBT community is well represented in the milieu, and I know that I can probably uh, put this topic and it can benefit a lot of the different uh, youth in particular. And uh, just having that honest discussion and just one kind of also sharing that lived experience from my end, I feel like uh, promotes, you know, I hope uh, some sort of kind of like, you know, vision of like, hey, an adult can be like queer and, you know, be successful and do do this kind of job. Yeah. Uh, and also just validation from their peers too, of knowing that like, hey, like, you know, like I'm openly proud and so that like, you can too. So a lot of that has been really, really helpful in terms of doing group interventions, especially those two. Mm -hmm. But more recently I've been developing my practice in terms of just kind of setting up and like a, a goal setting worksheet for specifically for this community. So I have kind of listed all the occupations uh, according to the OTPF mm. and have listed like, you know, what are some examples of occupations that can be impact impacted by this identity? So things like ADLs, right? Dressing according to your gender or social participation, coming out is a whole process, introducing yourself with your pronouns, how to, you know, correct someone, right? Or even things like, you know, IDLs, like money management, like, when you sign a check or right sign anything, you have to put your legal name prior to kind of changing it. And so, wow, yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah, so a lot of kind of these uh, occupations, I love to kind of just expose to you know kiddos and youth uh, overall, just to kind of promote a sense of like, hey, like you know, we can do this together. It's going to take some time and effort, but that's what we're here for. Yeah, there's like so much that goes into it that you know, I mean, even I think about and can impact all parts of the occupation for that individual, like from, like you're saying, dressing to even like signing a check, like things that seem so like typical to me. It's like, wow, it can be life changing. So that's really cool that you're empowering these clients to like engage in these activities that are like relevant to them. It's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. So what would you say as most OTs, you know, like the majority our female-dominated profession, primarily Caucasian, as both of you and I are as minorities, what would you say is one thing that can help, like, kind of 
how would I say this? Like, get a sense of this community and what their needs are, and what, how can we can provide a resource? Like, does the like, AOT have a resource? Like, what are, are there, like guides out there? Great question, right? And I think it's like so pressing in today's times for sure. There are a few different resources out there that have like super informed my own practice and my own teaching style for sure. And so the concept of cultural humility has really saturated throughout the OT literature recently. And so uh, cultural humility is essentially just a mindset that, you know, you're not assuming anything about someone's culture just based on what what they look like, based on like already your preconceived notions or previous knowledge. And it's coming into, you know, an interaction with the client, really just curious and asking questions and knowing that, you know, we're probably going to make mistakes and just acknowledging that we make those mistakes uh, and also at the same time acknowledge those power differentials, right? Mm. So even us, right, as like healthcare providers, like when we work with clients that look like you and I, like we still have a certain level of privilege and power over them. And so how do we kind of minimize that kind of standard or that difference gap. So cultural humility is a huge concept and there's a lot of different resources on the American Journal of Occupational Therapy related to that. There's actually also like an AOTA guide uh, made specifically for educators as well. But one article that really stands out for me is it's titled Becoming Like Anti-Racist Occupational Therapy Practitioners. Oh. And so, yeah, it, it came out uh, quite recently. Just looked it up. It's by Julia Sturman and Janet Najalzi. I believe I pronounced that incorrectly. So, <laughs> But yeah, it's a really great article that kind of did a scoping review on anti-racism and OT in the literature. And that article is one of my favorites ever because it actually has a gigantic table with actual practical strategies that OTs can use Wow! in their own practice, in their own education, you know, things like applying the Kawa model in practice to, you know, asking open-ended questions. So there's a lot of different suggestions that are provided in the article that I really love and I share with my students all the time. Oh, that's a wonderful resource. Yeah. I've seen that a lot in other professions too, actually. Like I look in the research and like, I don't remember which one. I think it was like something to do with mental health, actually. And they're like, call for like inclusion and, you know, like humility, basically. And it's just really cool. I'm seeing not just in OT, but across the other professions. And that can really help us as we're collaborating with them interdisciplinary, really, to, you know, like fill those gaps and provide the resources that our clients need. It's really, really cool. We'll we'll post that in the show notes. Yeah. I want to check that out. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then also I do want to mention uh, AOTA has a, an entire like diversity, equity and inclusion DEI resource library with even a really cool guide on how to work with uh, clients with just a variety of different hair types. So, right, uh, grooming is something that we do all the time, especially in FISDIS settings. And so it provides uh, a couple of different tips and suggestions on how to work with different hair types that, you know, yeah. That aren't always, you know, the ones that we always think of. <laughs> no, I, I've experienced that myself, like brushing hair and like I learned a lot on the job, but it's just like, wow, there's like so much that I'm learning and I'm teaching clients. And it's like every little thing, which is why OT is so cool, like from yeah. grooming and brushing hair to like anything that's cultural, right? Would you say there's like a lens or theory or framework for to apply kind of with specific groups like Latinx, LGBTQ in your experience, or ones that tend to work better than kind of like what students typically think about, right? Like PO, you know, doesn't work all the time. And there may be strengths and weaknesses to 
a particular one. So would you say there's one that kind of pops in your head that may be more helpful to kind of apply before you, as an OT in critical thinking process? I uh, primarily do use uh, Moho. Um, I also went to the University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, so we're they're really, really big on Moho there. Mm. Um, so the model of human occupation has been really helpful in terms of me just kind of uh, seeing the abolitional aspect. And most recently, in, in the latest edition, they really expanded on how the environment really encapsulates everybody, how that impacts you know people at the immediate, local, and kind of at the global context. And so that's been like really, really helpful for me to know just because of the communities that I work with, primarily like the Latinx community and also the LGBTQ plus community. A lot of their roles are definitely kind of shifted, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's a result of cancer or coming out. Right. And uh, just seeing how that whole process is like habituated. Right. So like how does there, you know, how does it stem off to like routines and how does, you know, it comes off to habits and uh, just realizing that. You know, at the center, we really just want to kind of follow like our lead, whether it's our cultural identity, whether it's our, you know, gender and sexuality expression. And so I feel like Moho really lends itself a lot through that. However, I will say specifically in mental health and a theory that has really helped me a lot recently to kind of communicate to my own clients, like what I'm focusing on or working on is the Kawa model. Uh, And it's been super helpful in terms of just having clients visually depict like you know, what are some of the driftwood or some of the facilitators? Uh, what are some of the rocks or barriers in their life? And I've seen this uh, be effective with both uh, adults and adolescents. Mm. And I actually had a patient like last week tell me like, hey, like, hey, Ricky, like I still have like my uh, poster uh, of like the mountains and the river on my wall. And it reminds me of like how many kind of, you know, strengths I do have. And so I think that the Kawa model is like super underutilized and uh, super, super effective for, you know, communicating our kind of distinct value. So it's about time for the lightning questions. The top three questions cool. I like to ask my guests. Are you ready for that, Ricky? Yes, I am. How would you, oh, you probably nailed this one. How would you explain OT to someone like a stranger on the street? So I would essentially describe it as a healthcare career uh, that works with people with and without disabilities uh, to do the things that they need to do or want to do. Usually that's kind of my elevator pitch. <laughs> I love it. Nice and short to the point, And that's what OT is. Yeah. <laughs> what is your personal favorite occupation? Personal one. Yeah. My favorite one is honestly health management. Uh, I'm a nerd like that. Um, I take a lot of different medications and have some medical things going on. So it's a really great way to kind of make sure everything is going super well. Yeah. And it's important because it affects other ones, right? Like if you have poor health, affects your sleep you might not want to do like leisure so very important it's a good reminder to everybody just just because you're healthy doesn't mean you can forget about health management too absolutely right everyone's doing it yep last what is your big takeaway you would say from today's uh, discussion yeah i think just overall that we have a lot of work uh, as a profession to kind of make sure that we are you know serving all of our clients equally and or not equally, but necessarily just upholding uh, equity. So making sure all communities have the supports that they need to be on an evil level playing field. And just knowing that OT has grown so much too, and we are continuously evolving. And I think it's also like a microcosm of like just general society too, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We're having discussions that we haven't had ever or that have been hushed before. 
And so I think it's a really great reminder of that. Yeah, one thing I thought of too is like, maybe you haven't learned about it in school. Like if we, even like some of the topics we talked about, like both of us haven't learned in school. It can be a topic of current day challenge or a need or an area that OT can address. So like, don't be afraid to explore it too and like take risk and try and go outside your comfort zone because that's what OT is all about, you know, helping patients meet their need and avoid the occupational deprivation. And we have guides like Moho and like Kawa out there. But yeah, it's that's something you gave me an insight into, Ricky. <laughs> oh, yay. But yeah, I'm uh, I'm a big proponent of taking risks, um, of course, while having patient safety in mind. Yeah. But even things like, you know, my work with LGBTQ plus youth, like there is hardly anything out there OT related that's like, you know, well documented and well researched uh, working with this community. And so a lot of it has just kind of stemmed off from like what I know OT is and what we can do. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, thanks for being on the show, Ricky. I really appreciate you being on and it was a great discussion. And for you listeners out there, check out the resources that we're going to post uh, the uh, show notes. Yeah, thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate you having me.